We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com squared. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Today we're learning about the experiences of medical workers serving on the front line of the COVID-19 crisis. Here's our host, Dr. Goody Singh, with more. We're now around two years into the global coronavirus pandemic, with COVID-19 firmly a part of our daily lives. With each new variant of the virus and the subsequent medical discoveries that allow us to increase our understanding of the condition, we might cautiously hope that perhaps a return to some kind of normality is in sight for 2022. But early 2020 was a very different time. Our guest today, Rupa Faruqi, is a writer and medical doctor whose book, Everything is True, tells her story of working on the front lines in the National Health Service, or NHS, in the UK during the first 40 days of the crisis. Rupa, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. And thank you also for writing this book. I believe that you speak for many health professionals when I say that what you have done is, I think, one of the most difficult tasks, which is to give words to the unspeakable. There is no doubt that the early weeks of the coronavirus pandemic were some of the most harrowing weeks, certainly in my career. And there are countless others like me who are grateful to people like you who have ensured that not only have you opened our eyes to the human story, that the government and much of the mainstream media seem to gloss over with slick presentations and statistics. But you've also ensured that the horror of those weeks should not go forgotten or fade from our all too porous memories. So first of all, thank you, Rupa, for, for doing that. When I kind of wrote it, I didn't think I was actually thinking of writing it for others, to be honest. It was such a personal account. I started it off really for myself and it was only towards the end of the writing when I began to wonder whether it would be helpful and whether it was something that perhaps might be shared or even should be shared. And you're always very nervous when you're writing something that is a little bit like memoir, which is, you know, such a personal story and also very worried about centering yourself in what is actually quite obviously a national tragedy. There are so many other bigger issues than my personal story. And it, it felt like a certain type of egotism to be putting yourself in the centre. And obviously all memoir is centred and that is its failing. But it was a way to try and share something and hold account, I think, or hold ourselves accountable to what was happening. And to remember, as you very rightly say, our memories are for us. And I didn't want to forget, actually, this terrible time. I wanted to remember it so that some future self, and I was thinking, I was just writing for me, would look back and think, God, that was awful. How, you know, to remember how terrible it had been. But actually at the same time to think, that's why it won't happen again to actually look back at it from a place of learning and think we got through it, we've reflected, we've learned, 
and we can move on. So I think that's why I thought it was perhaps worth sharing. But to be honest, I'm still kind of quite nervous about it sort of being out in the world and for having, like I say, put myself in this, in, you know, centred in this book as well, knowing that it is a book actually written really for colleagues and for patients and for all of those who kind of, you know, like yourself, who was who were on this journey. So thank you for saying that it was useful because that's actually all I really wanted it to be. It's 100% useful. And Rupa, you should know that it is a difficult tightrope that we travel as doctors, um, especially if we take any public role uh, in society. But to be able to tread that line of being so intimately entwined with people's lives when they are sick, when they come to us as patients. And then on the other hand, you know, wanting to present not their lives, but our experiences of life and death at the front line. It, it is a very difficult tightrope to walk. And I appreciate how thoughtful you have been in terms of the way that you've written this, of course, but also even in the way that you are going to be taking on the next few weeks of publicity and talking about the book. But I, I think there'll be a huge amount of support for what you have done and how you have told this story. Now, before we get into the nitty gritty of the book, I wondered if you might indulge my own curiosity and allow me to get to know you a little bit better first. Obviously, you came to this pandemic as a fully formed person. So who is Rupa Faruqi? And how did she come to write this book? Of course, if it doesn't sound too indulgent, I'll, I'll go through that. I was born in Lahore in Pakistan. My dad's from Pakistan. My mum's from Bangladesh. So um, there's a bit of political history between those two countries, which was, um, I think, problematic for my parents. So they made a decision to move abroad to Europe. Um, they ended up in London. And um, the story, the family myth goes that the reason they didn't go to Paris is that my dad had too many ex-girlfriends there and my mother wasn't having it. So um, <laughs> they ended up... <laughs> <laughs> so um, they ended up... That's um, brilliant. <laughs> my dad was quite peripatetic before he met my mum and he'd like um, studied in like Switzerland and went all over Europe and so on. So they ended up in London. Uh, they were there on a visitor's visa. And in fact, um, you know, when they had kids, we were all there on, I think, a visitor's visa that got renewed every six months until I was 16 years old and became a British citizen, finally. So that was kind of complex growing up. Um, part of, you know, every time you sort of went abroad, I remember one time not being, you know, let back into the country and thinking what would happen and thinking, oh, well, I get to go to school tomorrow. You don't really kind of take into account those sort of things when you're little. But, you know, every few months I thought, oh, are we going back to Pakistan? And going back to a place I'd left when I was a baby was always quite strange for me. But until I was 16, that's sort of the way you just sort of had to think. So it was this kind of, even though I had quite a stable kind of schooling, there was this kind of, you know, sense of the back of my head at any point you could be thrown out and I got to say with the current bill going through um, parliament part of me always still wonders at one point will I get um, caught up with and will I be asked to leave the country you never you know it's, it's really strange you kind of never quite lose that sense however much you know if you've been educated in the country brought up there contributed to it paid your tax married someone British you still wonder at one point do you really get to belong and I think that's something that I know. I think I probably address that in the book and in a lot of my writing, really. But then um, I got a scholarship to a really good school in London called St Paul's, which was great. And um, I did exams to get in. And I'm even though I wanted to do become a doctor, and in my old school I was the strongest in the sciences. I'm still stronger in the arts. And um, I came best in English, history, French and maths in their entrance exams. So that's what I ended up doing my A-levels in, which were paid for by the school. And with those A-levels, you can't really go and do medicine. So I went and did um, a PPE at Oxford. So even though I couldn't be a doctor then, I actually still tried to put kind of medicine into other things that I was doing. Then I went into advertising 
And I worked at um, Saatchi and Saatchi and at J. Walter Thompson as a worldwide account director. And the jobs, even though I did lots of accounts, like, you know, posh things like Rolex, where you got to go to Wimbledon and um, kind of quite big accounts like Andrex Puppies, where we did we did lots of endless shoots with adorable baby puppies. The things that really interested me were charitable accounts, which had some kind of medical interest. My favourite one actually was a campaign I did for the MS Society, which was about um, overcoming the lottery of care and making sure that people could actually get, you know, the appropriate medication, no matter where they were, which involved a lot of lobbying and campaigning in government. And um, later, when I left advertising to write my books and to become a lecturer at university, again, I was, with all my books, I actually thought was sort of trying to kind of undo some of my frustration about not being able to be a medic by writing about medical issues. So I wrote about fertility treatment, drawing on some of my own fertility treatment for my first book. I wrote about autism and bipolar disorder, drawing in, you know, what I'd known from what I'd learnt and, you know, people that I knew. I wrote about the changes in identity in the ageing process. I wrote about even skin conditions like eczema. So I managed to get a lot of my um, medical interest into my books. I put a lot of biomedical work into it. And at a certain point, I thought, well, they opened graduate entry to medicine. And I still find it amazing that you can actually have any degree and they'll let you sit the graduate entry exam in medicine. It doesn't actually have to be a science degree. In practice, it normally is. So the people who I was sitting the exam with were people who would have done maybe biomed or chemistry or physics or biology, or maybe they didn't get into medicine first time around, or maybe they changed their mind halfway through their degree and decided now they wanted to be doctors. So those are the people I was sitting the um, graduate entry to um, medicine exam with. And um, what I did was I delivered my sixth novel and just studied. Um, I took some books out of the library um, to studied up to first year undergrad, biology, physics and chemistry, because I had no A-levels in any sciences. And then I sat the exam with all the science grads and I came in the top three percent in the country. And within about half an hour of my um, results coming out, I got my interviews for med school. So that was quite amazing. Um, I was a bit late, actually, because I, <laughs> I'd, <laughs> I'd intended to go a few years before, but I thought there's no way I can go to med school with four children aged five and under. So I waited till my twins were three and then I started. So I was like quite a few, few years behind where I wanted to be when I finally got into medicine. But you know what? I just kind of thought if it ever, and you know, a lot of people told me, you've already got a job, you've already got a career, you're already quite a well-known writer. And I was probably the most successful I'd ever been as a writer at the point when I applied for medical school. But um, I kind of thought if you're ever going to do it, this thing that you always wanted to do, do it now. So that's what I did. And that's why I was like, you know, a grown up studying A-level chemistry and physics and biology. What's really interesting to me is that you come to medicine as someone who's already lived multiple lives. And of course, you bring all of that to your work and certainly to your writing. And that's what I want to talk to you about now. Now, you write about a period in time that you refer to as la quarantera. Um, and I wondered whether you could just explain, for clarity's sake, what period of time you're referring to in that. Because, of course, this podcast is listened to all over the world and the pandemic unfolded at different times for different countries. So what do you refer to when you talk about La Quarantera? I hadn't originally intended to keep um, a 40-day account. And, you know, 40, it felt, at a certain point of the pandemic, it felt kind of big and biblical. 
And the truth is that when we were going through all of this, Italy had actually already started. So, you know, the wittering and the complaints from government that they didn't really know what was going to happen and they couldn't have been better warned. In fact, it was already happening. It was already reflected in a mirror very, very close to us. And I wasn't aware enough of what was going on. I was really much too wrapped up in my grief and with losing my sister. But I know that there were others who back in January were following what was happening in Italy and who knew that, you know, from a few dozen deaths in a couple of weeks on, what the trajectory would look like, that it would be kind of logarithmic, that it would be incredible. And so the idea of the 40 days is just something that it just sort of touched me, really, especially when Italy passed their 40 days halfway through when I was writing. And I was thinking, this is what it's been like for, you know, for them. I have a friend in Italy who was like, you know, going through everything that we were going through a couple of weeks beforehand, going through what was happening in the hospital, singing from the, you know, listening to the singing from the balconies. And um, so that's what I meant by the 40 days, the quarantine, because originally the kind of the original meaning of quarantine, quarantine in French is 40. And it's the original meaning is for 40 days of isolation to prevent the spread of contagious disease. It was originally used for keeping boats in harbour for 40 days. And it seemed to make sense that when we were looking at the lockdown, that's something, that's what we were really trying to do, hold this virus off to try and help and kind of prevent the spread of infectious disease. As a nation, we were trying to come together and in this collegiate way, try and do when we kind of started and maintained the lockdown. And so I started writing the book from the day before lockdown. And at the point of about 40 days on is when I just couldn't write it anymore, really. I'd already gone through COVID. I was a bit kind of woolly in my head at that point. And I'd felt and I hoped that at the end of those 40 days, we were turning a corner, that people were starting to kind of um, come a little bit blinking into the light. There were, you know, shots on um, TV of people sitting in parks with, you know, maybe a park bench between them with a bottle of champagne in the middle. And there was a sort of sense of hope that the um, antibody test, which seemed a big deal at the time, was coming, proving that you'd had COVID and that would somehow change things a little bit. So um, that's how the quarantine, the 40 days, somehow kind of wrapped itself into my writing. And I remember, having worked through that period of time, the confusion and the chaos... And, you know, I my background is that I'm a pediatric doctor, but, you know, we were being asked to help out on the adult hospital wards and asked to work outside of our competence areas, really. And I, I just wondered whether you could uh, tell us a little bit about the kind of medicine and the kind of doctor that you are and what you were doing at the time, um, because... I know from the book that you were called on to do some of the most kind of intimate procedures with patients at the time, weren't you? The ones that would put you most at risk of COVID. Um, yeah, I was a very junior doctor at the start. I'm now an internal medicine trainee. So I'm on, on call. I'm on the medical take in A&E and I rotate through different aspects of medicine. So at the moment um, I'm on geriatrics and then I'll be back on the intensive care unit next time. And I actually started my foundation training in ITU. So um, that's how I could do the things like the arterial lines and the central lines and so on. So um, when I actually started, when I was in my foundation training, I was in medicine, I was in acute medicine, and um, I was due to rotate onto surgery, but obviously that never happened because of the pandemic, so I just stayed where I was. And so I was either on the acute medical wards or on the acute medical take in A&E. So I was either admitting people into the medical part of the hospital from A&E or looking after them once I got them onto the ward. That was pretty much what all that I was doing. And then later on, actually, I did have a paediatrics rotation um, a bit after the journey of the book, but um, got redeployed into the COVID um, aerosol generating proceeding wards um, a few weeks into that. 
you know, much like you, we got, you know, everyone got moved back onto um, COVID or medicine. And, you know, that very much was the, the story of the time, right? It was uh, redeployment, uh, chaos, uh, disorganization, or it felt like that, at least on, on the ground. And I think what you did really well with the book was to express your anger and frustration with how things were run, both in the NHS, in the National Health Service and in the country as a whole. But there's not just anger that exists in this book. For me, of course, there's this underlying poignancy that comes from the grief that you have experienced just as this global pandemic was unfolding. Because you were obviously touched by your own personal tragedy, sadly, before this all began. I can only imagine... Um, how difficult it must have been to be a functioning human being, let alone a functioning doctor in the aftermath of losing one's sister to breast cancer. But then also how much harder to have to deal with everything else that one has to deal with as a mother, um, as a wife, as all the different roles that we, we have to take. And I wonder how much that has actually helped or sharpened your analysis of this situation in a way, you know, having felt the acuity of terrible grief and loss yourself so close to when the pandemic was unfolding. Do you think that helped you to become a better doctor during that time? I don't know about better, but I guess it made me more dedicated, certainly. And in a strange way, for anyone who, you know, when, when you lose someone, when it's so hard to, to carry on. And I was actually weirdly grateful to the ward for not giving me time to think the whole length of my 13 hour shift because the one day um I did go in um well you know they told me not to go in the day after her funeral I, I went in anyway and they just took one look at me and sent me home and that never happens our ward is really really busy and you need every person you can get but they saw something that I didn't then they just like you know sent me back and I was useless that day I was just like came home and I just puddled into my boots I was just frankly a bag of organs on the floor I did nothing useful I wasn't helpful to myself to my children and I obviously wasn't even helping my colleagues on the ward and the next day I pulled myself together and went back in and um, maybe it was just a way of pushing the grief away but actually working and helping and looking after other people actually made sense to me it was something that I could do and it kind of it helped me kind of get over, I think, the early stages of grief where actually you don't want to do anything. So it definitely made me kind of more dedicated as a doctor. Um, every kind of spare moment was given to care. I remember thinking taking 10 minutes to eat a sandwich at my rolling laptop while looking after up patient investigations felt like quite luxurious. That I was somehow kind of like, you know, getting away with it by just do, even doing that. So I think that was helpful. In terms of the emotional impact, um, I started writing the book a few weeks in when I was trying to kind of unravel what it was that I was feeling with all this kind of grief and anger about the loss of my sister, about the kind of incredible unfairness to lose someone, you know, so young, so healthy with absolutely, you know, with so much to live for. And just by this incredible kind of unlucky circumstance, it just happened to be her that that got picked out. And I was trying to kind of make sense of this, which is when I started the writing. And at the point of writing about my own grief, and, you know, I guess that's what comes across as the prologue in the book, the COVID pandemic unleashed itself around us. It was like a flood. So I was there just grappling with kind of my own tears. And then it was everybody else's. And my loss was just one loss threaded into this whole kind of tapestry of what everyone else was feeling because first it was the fear and then it was the pain and then it was losing people and then we just kept losing people and so my personal tragedy was somehow kind of diluted in this in this kind of sea of other people of everyone else's tears and in a way that helped 
because it wasn't about me. It was about all of us. And what I felt was being felt by everyone. And when someone was losing someone, I remember one lady on the ward who was diagnosed and she was going to die shortly and she was more worried about her children. And I could empathise. My sister lost her children, you know, was going to lose her children because she was going to pass away. And the thing that worried her most when she was um, towards her last days was, and this is before we really paid into it, paid attention to what was happening with the pandemic, was that um, her children might actually plough their exams, that they might not get great grades because they were worried about her. That was her biggest fear, that someone might lose out on university place or, you know, do badly in A-levels or not do well in their first year of um, exams. And instead, you know, her daughter didn't even make it back to Cambridge after she passed away. She was away for two, you know, she'd spent the whole of the first term at her mother's bedside. And then after Kiruna passed away, she was only, think I think, back for a week or so before everyone had to come back. So, you know, we couldn't have imagined quite, you know, what would happen and how, you know, our personal tragedy would be so kind of subsumed into something nationally. But at least when someone lost someone, I could say, honestly, I felt that too. And when someone said, you know, I'm worried about the people I'm leaving behind, I could say, I've been left behind. And, you know, it's okay, they'll, you know, they'll get by. Because day after day, you do you just kind of put one foot in front of the other and you get by. It's not that life must go on, it's just that it does. <laughs> no, 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 you're absolutely right. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. I think what's interesting is that there's a line in your book which really stuck with me, which is, death is all around, it's everywhere, and the air is constantly crackling with the expired electricity of it. And that's very much what it felt like. It very much felt like death was everywhere at the time, which you would think as the doctors were used to that. But actually, I don't think that the medical profession and healthcare systems in general deal with death very well. 
And I'm sure you may well have read Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal. But he questions also, you know, healthcare system's ability to deal with death properly. And, you know, we don't deal with it well as a culture. And I wonder what, in your opinion, COVID has taught us about our culture's attitude to death. It's, it's difficult for me because, I mean, I have a lot of respect for my palliative colleagues and the palliative nurses and everything they do in my own trust. My own experience, though, as not as a clinician, but as a patient relative, it was really, really hard. And I guess it is hard when it's personal. But during my sister's last few weeks, it felt like every question we asked and every concern we had was kind of all the response we got was that same sort of slightly head turned sympathy kind of look and the same kind of four medications that were being offered you know so it was anticipatory medication and that cocks and that head cocked to the side i'm so sorry but there's nothing you can do about it and i know it's hard day by day and that was before the pandemic but it is difficult to deal with death and you know for people who choose to go into the um, the branch of medicine where they have to kind of manage it day by day I, I'm sure it's it's really hard I think all of us we are not really trained in how to lose someone you know we're trained so well in how to in how to keep them with us and it's something I think maybe I've been getting better at. I think I always you know, tell my patients that, you know, when we're getting towards the end now, that we're going to hope for the best. You know, hope is important. You know, hope is important for the patient, for the family. But we should also plan for the worst. And that's important too, to have things in place and have things in order. Um, I'm not sure the pandemic taught me much about that, but I think maybe my sister did. I mean, she had, you know, everything so well planned. She was a bit of a micromanager. She actually even, like, decided the playlist for the party that was going to happen after, you know, when we did the, the party that was going to be a celebration of her life. And, um, you know, she kind of decided what food was going to be at the funeral. So I think that... Um, I was t taking forward to planning to a whole new level there. <laughs> no, it was great. There was like, you know, loads of vegetarian, which is veggie, loads of vegetarian biryani. It was like, you know, it was really, really well planned. So, <laughs> so um, I think that um, being able to kind of address that, not to think of it as something terrifying, but just something that, you know, that happens to us all. And weirdly, I think my, my children helped me as well because they learnt when my sister passed away that everyone dies, that, you know, even mothers can die. And when I was going into the hospital every day and thinking, oh my God, what am I doing? What if I bring back a virus? What if I, you know, what if I get it? What if I am one of the ones who actually ends up lined up against a wall and goes because of this? Then I actually thought, you know, they'll be all right because they've already learned that lesson. You know, they know that, you know, mothers can die. They've seen it with my sister. One day they'll see it with me. And that's okay. You know, we kind of learned that, yes, we will all grow old because the alternative would be, you know, we know what the alternative is. And we will all die. And it's quite funny because they actually said, yeah, of course, everyone has to die. The alternative would be horrible. It'd be like a zombie apocalypse walking around. <laughs> so I, I kind of, I know it's kind of dark way of looking at it, but we kind of understood that. And, you know, the reason that it's important to talk about death and to remember the isolation that many people felt at the time of the height of the pandemic with regard to not being able to mourn for their loved ones and this is an important time for us to remember that, given what's happening currently in the news. So we know that the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom has been forced to apologise for having broken lockdown rules himself 
during the lockdown. And given that your book, Rupert, so well describes just the utter lack of leadership in the very early stages of the pandemic and the frustration that was felt by the National Health Service, by the doctors in it, and also by the public. I wonder how you're feeling now hearing that this is what's happening and that these accounts are coming out when you've just written so beautifully about how much suffering was happening at that time. I think that one of the hardest things as a healthcare professional, as as a clinician during the pandemic, was this separation of family from their loved ones in their hardest moments. On the ward, I saw this a lot where we basically had to keep families away from their loved ones in order to protect them. And equally also to protect the staff as well. And even though we were trying to stick to the rules and trying to prevent the spread from COVID in the communities, prevent spread among patients, from families, it still felt like a very difficult conversation. And I felt that there were many moments stolen in many families' lives when they should have been at their loved one's side during their last moments. They should have had those conversations. And Many times I tried to be, you know, the hand for that patient to hold when their loved one wasn't there, when they were speaking to someone, you know, as we are speaking now through a screen. I think that was one of the hardest things in the pandemic, actually, you know, because our instinct as humans is to want to to touch and hold and to be there, to be present. And the fact that we were actually asking people to be absent as their way of protecting their loved one, it's not intuitive at all. And emotionally, it was very difficult to kind of explain that and even for ourselves to... um, to, I guess, police it. And then when you realise these sacrifices that everyone made to try and keep their loved ones safe, to try and keep the staff safe in hospitals, to try and keep the patients safe by staying away, by following the rules. And then we find out that actually leadership, that government leadership who are actually making the rules, while we were telling someone that they couldn't come in and, um, and you know, hold their mother's hand, they were actually having gin and tonic and parties in the basement. They were not leading by example and actually contributing to the spread of virus. It's just shocking. I, I think it's actually really, really, um, there, there aren't words for it. When I saw this current news cycle and the reports that kept spiralling, you know, downwards, that they were kind of more and more parties and less and less respect. And this is from those who actually should have some kind of respect and duty of care towards those that they are pretending to govern. There, there are really no words for it, are there? It felt like we'd slipped into a dystopian kind of Orwellian world, a kind of autocracy where, yes, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. And it's pretty clear who the pigs are, aren't they? So it's not really something I dealt with in the book, but I think my kind of anger towards the leadership, towards those who were purporting to actually be guiding us in this situation and their lack of diligence and their lack of care and lack of duty towards those of us who were actually at the kind of the hard end of it, providing patient care, providing, you know, that hand on hand care, actually looking after the people who when there was no one else there to. I think it just shows just an incredible lack of respect. And it's kind of quite sad for me, you know, a couple of years on having written this book to actually kind of find out that's what really what was going on. It's what we suspected, but for it to have been so blatant, I think it's upsetting for everyone. And what's really interesting from my perspective is how that lack of respect that you refer to is all the more enraging and infuriating when you think back that in spring 2020, while you and I and hundreds of thousands of other health and social care workers were struggling to provide the best quality of care that we could in an underfunded NHS that was unable to provide us with adequate PPE, 
all while that was happening, the same powers that be were paying two billion pounds of taxpayers' money to private hospitals to help provide care for the, in the NHS. And yet they only helped take care of 0.1% of COVID patients. And all while that was happening, we had that whole phenomenon of clapping for carers and being told that, oh, we're NHS heroes. And again, I, I suppose my question is about how the government were able to take advantage of the public perception of health workers and doctors in particular, which is something that you actually talk about in your book. And I, I wonder what you feel about that. How should the public look at doctors and other healthcare workers? Because there is this horrible, I feel, uh, exaggerated uh, valorization of us as heroes or angels on the one hand. But at the same time, we don't have the adequate care and respect from our government to actually take care of us, even though we're so valued by the, the public on the surface of things. I think at a certain point, it felt like the leadership and the government were only interested in um, the NHS and the medical profession as far as they could use it to further their own political ground to actually gain political advantage. And it started way back um, even before Brexit when they were painting on the side of a bus that they were going to actually use Brexit to actually give money to the NHS. It's become a kind of political plaything and they only seem to be interested in it as far as it can further their own popularity. But when it comes to actually practising what is preached, then, you know, we actually didn't have what we needed on the ground. When you saw the PPE that was being used abroad and that was being used in China, that actually fully covered, you know, feet and fully covered hair and so on to prevent virus from being soaked in. And actually, you know, what we had available, what was considered appropriate PPE in the UK was just a simple mask, a pair of gloves and a plastic pinny, because that's all that was available and if you had a COVID positive patient on your ward, then you'd have some better PPE, but they would have to be confirmed positive and the testing wasn't very sensitive at that point. So we didn't want to find out for days that we were looking after COVID positive patients at all they were. So everyone was looking after COVID positive patients with inadequate PPE and the PPE was deemed appropriate based on what was available. So we were all kind of putting ourselves at risk. And meantime, you know, a clap for carers is being organised as a kind of photo shoot for Boris Johnson at his front door for everyone else. And actually, ironically, I remember the first day they organised a clap for the carers because no one knew anything about it. We were, I was working in A&E that, that night and all of us working there in this, you know, busy department without windows didn't have a clue that someone, people were outside clapping and that politicians were having photos of themselves taken and were filming themselves clapping for the carers. I didn't have any idea about it until I came home at the end of my shift towards midnight when I saw some WhatsApps from my friends saying, oh, you must have felt lots of love, you know, with everyone clapping for you. And we saw the videos on WhatsApp and on Twitter. And, you know, for those of us actually working at that point, it meant nothing. And I remember one of the porters saying, yes, it's all very nice to take praise, but I, frankly, I'd rather the cash, you know, you'd rather be, you know, supported. You'd rather have something practical than actually, you know, have someone making a gesture. I remember that no one on our street really clapped apart from our immediate neighbours. And I felt really guilty because I had a feeling that they were just doing it because of me. And um, I was actually quite glad, <coughs> excuse me, and I was actually quite glad when it stopped, because it felt like, um, like so much of this government, it just felt like showmanship. It felt like presentation over content, really, style over substance, and not even that stylish, because it was quite an obvious attempt to curry favour and 
get a populist, you know, fuzzy feeling towards the government without actually providing anything concrete. So the way the government has managed this narrative so far, I'm stunned that it's been so successful for them. And I think quite upset by how it feels that the clinicians and the healthcare workers and the nurses and the carers and the GPs have somehow been made targets after all this hard work that we've been done for not doing enough and not doing it better. And I apologise if I've said this before, if I've said this somewhere else, but it really feels like, you know, you've cut the legs off someone and then you're complaining they're not running fast enough to keep up with you. And that's what it feels like this government has done to our health service and is continuing to do to it. And meanwhile, they're getting political favour and votes by pretending to actually care. You know, as we're wrapping up this conversation, you say in your book that you can't understand the lack of anger in relation to the number of deaths, in relation to how badly managed things were. And a line that I've underlined is how quickly we settle for less. And it calls to mind something that was actually in Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale, which is this idea of how we just accept even horrible, horrible things. Uh, And her quote is, ordinary is what you are used to. This may not seem ordinary to you now, but after a time it will. It will become ordinary. And that's where I feel that we are at with the corruption, with the total injustice that we're seeing at the level of governance, not just in the health service, but right across all sectors of society. You know, we have fundamentally lost trust in our institutions, not just in the United Kingdom, but I dare say across a large part of the world. And this pandemic has been the thing that has really illuminated that for us and shown us that. You have written this book, Rupa, as a way of drawing attention to some of what was happening on the ground at that time. And I wonder what you would like people to take from your book. If there's just one thing that they take from your book, what would it be? And what is the message that you are trying to leave people with? The idea of how quickly we settle for less. That was something that I felt very strongly when I was watching my sister deteriorate. I remember thinking that, okay, she can't um, really laugh out loud anymore, but maybe she'll smile. And we can't have a long conversation anymore. But maybe, you know, she'll just sort of, you know, have a chat or say good morning. She can't really share her favourite cakes with us anymore, but maybe she'll just sort of look at them or smell them or, you know, nibble the corner. And all the things that you used to do together, laugh and have conversations and share your favourite gatto and that sort of thing became, you know, became diminished. So it became just hoping for that sleepy smile, hoping for that word of acknowledgement hoping for a kind of a look of pleasure that you've brought, you know, something that she used to like to eat. And you realise how the bar is low, that you would settle for anything, that you would settle for less. And obviously watching the deterioration of a person isn't the same as watching the deterioration of an institution. But during the pandemic, I think we learned more and more to settle for less. So I felt that we were putting up with less PPE. We were putting up with having all our holidays cancelled. We were putting up with being told with hours notice to come in and work a day whether or not we were free wasn't even asked you know and we did it we kind of because we wanted to support we have this huge collegiate belief belief in this thing that we actually want to do something right and look after our patients and do the very best we can in terms of you know what do I want people to take from this book I wouldn't really describe this as a book as such it was more of an account because I wanted us to be accountable to each other, to ourselves. I think as a clinician, yes, you have a duty of care towards your patients, but there's also a duty of candour. 
you owe them the truth. And I believe that very strongly. You know, I always tell my patients what is happening with them. I even have that difficult discussion if I think that they've now in a fight that they can't win. And I felt that this story, this account that I wrote, is probably better described as a romance because I think it was Hawthorne who said that once you make a decision to call a story a romance, then it doesn't dare to veer from the truth. And I think the stories in this book are of those that we love, those who we cared for. And I think when you do that, it's no longer centred on me or on them. It's about that connection. So what I really want people to take from this account that I've written, from this romance between the carers and those who are cared for, is that that connection is important, despite all our flaws and our fragility and our failing that we are, I guess, redeemed by how we are connected to each other and what we owe to each other. And I know I've said this many times in this book, and I've probably said it many times in this um, discussion, but what we owe to each other really, as those who love, as those who care, is the truth. Well, thank you so much, Rupa, for such a fascinating conversation and also for your truly beautiful book. Rupa Faruqi's book, Everything is True, is out now from Bloomsbury. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared, and I've been Goody Singh. Thank you for listening.